Good morning everyone, my name is Ben, it's great to be with you this morning. I'm going to be speaking in the final one of our In These Days series and today we are looking at Psalm 145 and this is the last psalm that David wrote. It's kind of a summary psalm for him so it's the perfect psalm for us to look at as we finish our own series. And a key feature of this psalm is a call to worship God through all things, in all situations. And alongside this series, we as a church, we've been learning to worship God in a new way as we've been socially distanced. We've been trying to use technology uh, to still lift up our voices and meet with him. And we pushed through some awkward moments as a church, haven't we? Times where people have forgotten to put themselves on mute. There's been this cacophony of noise. But we've got through and actually the really encouraging thing for me has been that we have met with God in real and powerful ways during this time. Worship is harder, but in spite of this, personally, I've had some incredible moments with God, both individually and as a church together. But we can't worship what we don't know. So this psalm is really helpful for us because it goes into the detail of who God is, what he's like, because worship is about adoration, it's about becoming fixated on someone or something and putting that above everything else. It's fair to say too many preachers, that I know at least, speak about football in their illustrations too often. So JP, Rick, <laughs> I'm thinking of you two specifically on this one. However, I have to say that in our culture, I believe football is one of the best examples of secular adoration. Football for many is secular church. It's thousands of people singing their hearts out, placing their hopes and their dreams in a group of people, players, their football team. And in our society, people go into marriage with the attitude of, look, I really love you, but we'll see if things work out. Whereas your football team is for life, isn't it? Through thick and thin, regardless of whether it brings any joy or not. We'll see if Forrest win the playoffs and get promoted. No, I can't believe Forrest have thrown it away again. I am gutted to have to bring you this preach correction. Um, we record our preaches in the morning. I was certain Forrest were going to get to the playoffs. I've just finished an elders meeting and they haven't. I'm so sorry for all of you Forest fans. Back to the preach. But the reality is that a large proportion of the hopes and the dreams of this wonderful city of ours are dependent on what happens on the football pitch over the next week and a half. Now I have a cursory knowledge of football. I actually like to watch a game, but I don't love it. But real fans, know all there is to know about their team. Do you know, diehard fans, they might not say it like this, but they are, in many ways, worshipping their team. They're in the stadium. They're singing the praises of their team. Their lives are affected by the outcome of that team. In the last week, Leeds, a Forest Championship rival, they got promoted. And so I read this headline, uh, which uh, was about their manager, and it said this, Bielsa is God. Leads go crazy as they seal their Premier League return. Worship is part of their experience. Maybe you're not interested in football, 
but the thing that you're tempted to worship is your bank balance or your family or your image. Worship can be defined as worthship. So it's something that you give your time to. You know, the thing that you're tempted to put above all things. And it might not be a bad thing. Often they're good things, but they're not ultimate things. Psalm 145 looks at worshipping someone of ultimate significance. So going back to the football analogy, Psalm 145 is essentially an ancient multiverse chant explaining who God is. A lot of football chants have a clear structure or a clever rhythm and this one's no different. It's an acrostic of the Hebrew alphabet. It is the Hebrew A to Z of why the God of the Hebrews is the best. Esme is now going to read this holy chant and as she does, I'd love you to focus in particularly on what the verses say about who God is. Psalm 145, Great is the Lord. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendour of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendour of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand, you satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. Thank you, Ez. We worship God because of who he is and because of what he's done. And this psalm contains both of these aspects. He's wise, he's gracious, and he has also totally transformed my life. However, God is more interested in our character and who we are rather than what we do. And so that's also, first and foremost, how we should approach him. As a parent, I love my kids. 
fundamentally, uh, not because of what they do, but because of who they are. So um, whether they get a great grade or a terrible grade, that doesn't affect my love for them, or whether they have been a delight or an absolute pain for an afternoon. Again, my love for them is constant. And because this is quite a countercultural thing, compared with our uh, performance-driven culture, I tell them most evenings that my love for them doesn't change whether they've been brilliant or whether they've had not their best day. And it's the same with God. When we come to faith, we are adopted into his family as a son or daughter, and it's a grace gift. There's nothing that we can do to change that. So God's brought us into his family, because, as it says in verses 8 and 9, the Lord is gracious and merciful. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all and his mercy is over all that he has made. Original readers would have heard these words, this statement about God's character, and they would have immediately been drawn to the Exodus story because it is a direct quote from Exodus 34. In this part of Exodus, it, God is renewing the covenant between himself and his people. So if the context of this passage is God's covenant, is about God's covenant, then the verses are a description of what motivated God to form a covenant with his people in the first place. So it's a covenant with love at its core. The word covenant simply means commitment. So, for example, it's the foundation of marriage when a couple says their vows for the first time to one another. And marriage is a useful illustration of this covenant because it is the picture that the Bible uses often to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. So, back to the Exodus story. Moses is going up Mount Sinai and God proclaims the words we've just read about himself that he is gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger. And these words are all the more poignant because of what happened in the previous couple of chapters. So previously, Moses had gone up Mount Sinai for the first time, he'd encountered God, God had laid out the Ten Commandments on tablets of stone. And these commandments, by the way, were laid out to enable the people of God to come into relationship with him. But then, uh, Moses went down the mountain and to his horror he saw that the people had built and were worshipping a golden calf. So Moses smashes the tablets in anger, he calls the people to repent and then two chapters later in Exodus 34 he's up the mountain again getting the tablets for the second time and God in his grace and his mercy and love forgives his people, provides these uh, commandments to enable relationship to continue. God makes a covenant with his people motivated by his love and his compassion for them. The covenant between God and his people is one of the key themes that the Bible keeps coming back to. These were covenants in the Old Testament for, uh, which were happened on hills and mountains throughout the whole of the Old Testament. However, the covenants themselves, they serve as pointers towards the ultimate covenant, the main theme of the New Testament. And by the way, what does testament mean? It means covenant. So, New Testament, New Covenant. This final, 
everlasting covenant was made on the hill of Calvary when Jesus died on the cross. And this covenant makes us right with God once and for all. This covenant means that everyone who believes in him is eternally rescued from sin and shame. Praise God. Jesus died in the ultimate demonstration of covenant love, generosity and grace. I said earlier that the picture of marriage is used readily in the Bible to describe the relationship between Christ and the church. And so I've been thinking about my own marriage to Emily. So we've been married 13 years and there are many things that I love about her. So for example, she is very talented. Uh, on the night that we met, she absolutely smashed it with a, a guitar singer, Cindy and Cheryl Crow, uh, strong enough, it is a 90s classic, it's great, and my heart was hers almost from that moment. She's also more academic than me, so she got a first class degree from uh, the University of Nottingham, and uh, she's funny, so she would say that she takes my jokes and she makes them funnier, and unfortunately, that is actually true. However, our relationship would not be in a healthy place if the foundation of our relationship was her talent, her intelligence, or her sense of humour. You know, I would feel very insecure about that relationship. I would think that at any point she could take her talent and she could move, go elsewhere. Or if something happened to her that meant that she was no longer able to take my jokes and make them funnier, I, I might think, well, what's the point of investing in our relationship then? But with covenant love as the foundation, there is security. It's unchanging, it's life-giving. Covenant love, it's the basis of marriage, but it's also, even more importantly, the basis of our relationship with God. If we know God as just powerful, or healer, or judge, those are all things that he is. But if we know them without knowing his covenant love, we end up feeling very insecure. We quickly lose the central tenet, the main message, the wonder of the Christian faith, that God made a way through Jesus for us to come into relationship with him in the ultimate demonstration of love. Our faith is founded in and on an everlasting covenant brought about by a selfless act of love. Without it, without acknowledging the reality of this love, we try to please God out of fear rather than out of joy. So, so many Christians have an incorrect view in this area and so either wonder whether they're saved or try and earn God's love by doing good deeds. If that's you, I believe God wants to speak to you directly today. He wants to emphasise that you are saved by his unconditional love, his grace, his compassion. You're loved, you're accepted. This is the foundation of your relationship with God. So that doesn't mean that he agrees with everything that we do. You know, he, he doesn't uh, accept everything we do as right. You know, our culture would have us believe that love is the universal acceptance of everything. That's not what the Bible says. But he loves you because he has chosen to love you regardless of your actions or your shortcomings. Early on in my relationship with Emily, a few months in when I knew that I really liked her, 
I started to worry um, that a chronic health condition that I have, it's essentially uh, my immune system uh, attacking my joints and causing arthritis, started to worry that as I expressed and explained some of that to Emily, she would no longer want to be in a relationship with me. So uh, we sat down one evening and with trepidation, I laid out all of my concerns and I was met with love, with grace and with encouragement. If you do not know the truth that you are accepted fully by God, then pray about it. Speak to someone about it. Speak to God about it. Lay down your fears at his feet. Carve out some time to listen to what he has to say about you. Read some key verses about the promises that he's given you. So once we begin to understand that we are loved and accepted because Jesus made a way for us on the cross, from this covenant foundation, how do we respond? We respond by worshipping. We worship because of who God is and because of what he's done. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in love. By his blood, we are new people. We are new creations. And as you sit here, listening to this message, if you put your trust in Jesus, you are a new creation. You're not the sum of your gifts and your talents. You're not your upbringing or your mistakes. You do not need to earn God's approval. Even when you let God down, covenant love is there. It's steadfast for you. And it's from this place, this foundation of total security that we worship. This psalm uses a remarkable variety of words to describe different ways of worshipping and praising God. So in verse 1, let's have a look at them. Verse 1, it says, extol and bless. Verse 2, praise. Verse 4, commend. Verse 5, meditate. Verse 6, speak. Verse 7, pour forth and sing aloud. And verse 10, give thanks. And those different words, they're expressions of praise that David is using. He's using all the vocabulary that he can. So let's do the same. This week, why don't you pray out in your prayer time every attribute you can think of describing God. When you've done that, start declaring what his character is like. Then ask him to help you to do all the things that he's called you to do, to worship, to praise, to meditate, to adore. We are to praise God with everything that we have not out of obligation, but because he is our God and King and worthy of our praise. So let's be known as a people who praise, driven by our passion and our love for Jesus. This is who we are. We are a community that's thriving together because of the gospel we have. And, and because of that gospel, we want to reach the city with that gospel. As we worship, our mission to the city is fueled. As we worship, we serve the poor. We want to reach our neighbours. We want to fight for racial justice. Worship is the fuel that powers everything we do in God's name. Worship and witness, praise and proclamation. They go hand in hand. Finally, this psalm then goes on to focus on the ancient and the eternal aspect of praise. 
So this intergenerational, eternal aspect of our praise, this is because, first and foremost, we have been made to worship. Verse 13, it says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion lasts throughout all generations. Jesus, our King, whom we worship, his kingdom is eternal. And we will be worshipping King Jesus forever, in heaven, for eternity, with the Alpha and the Omega, with every tribe and tongue, with the one who once died and is now alive forever. And there will be no more pain, there will be no more crying. That's where we're going eternally. So as you go through the ups and downs of life, as you do well, and as you go through a time where you just feel like you're making mistake after mistake after mistake, make sure you know in your heart of hearts that you are loved by God. This covenant is the foundation by which you then build your life upon. And our response to this love and security is for us to worship. And so that is what we are going to do right now. Chris, over to you.